0: Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good to be with you this morning. And uh, yeah, you know, continuing through Mark, when you're in a book like Mark, where his stated purpose in 1-1 is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you're going to see evidence throughout the book that Jesus is the Son of God, truly God, truly man. And so the, the awe and wonder for the Christian in this Christmas season is the unparalleled nature of the Incarnation. There is no other event like it in human history. That God Himself, through God throughout all eternity, with no beginning, with with no end, would choose to take on flesh. Would come into the world and be as a man. Like a man in every way, yet without sin. The Incarnation, incarnate, coming into flesh, Is something that our minds can't fathom. How can God be eternal, unchangeable, above all, yet truly be a man with sandals on his feet and dust between his toes? Walking and working in a world that so desperately needs Him. So we know He came to redeem sinners. We know He came to save that which was lost. But He also came to redeem His creation. The very One who spoke the world into existence, created all things by the power of His hand, is now here to redeem them. To bring them back to their intended state. Because they are fallen. They are also affected by the curse. The very ground we walk on, the very trees we look at, the very sea that Jesus is going to walk on this morning, is affected by the fall itself is an imagery of the curse. And so we're going to look at some of those, that, that symbolism this morning. What Jesus does in sinners and in the world is He comes to bring order to chaos. Comes to bring peace to the storm. And if Jesus is not Emmanuel, He is not God with us. If He is not truly God and truly man, we have no reason to celebrate. But if He is, we have every reason to celebrate. And so this morning, we're going to look at two great declarations of Emmanuel God with us, the God over creation and that which is raging against him, and the God over sickness that is raging against us and is filled with divine imagery. And as well, there's going to be many biblical parallels. And uh, so if you're quick with your Bible, you can flip through with me. Uh, otherwise, they'll be on the screen because I want to cover a lot of ground. Uh, But I don't want you to get completely drawn away by the details. But there's a lot going on here. And in Mark's Gospel, it's interesting that Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. And of the synoptics, the the, the summary Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mark has the least events in Jesus' life. However, Mark gives the most detail in those accounts. And in this one particularly, there are some details that are going to be really helpful for us to see what Jesus is doing, as well as... Many applications for the Christian life. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 6, please. If you don't have a Bible, there is one right in front of you. Mark chapter 6, I'm going to pick up in verse 45. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came into the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people out on their beds and wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, into villages and cities or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch them. Even the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Oh God, our God, how amazing you are. You could easily snap your proverbial fingers and it would be so. You could speak it and it would be. But yet you chose to take on flesh and walk among us. You chose to manifest yourself to us. You chose to redeem people who did not deserve it and did not want it. You chose to declare your majesty, to reveal your glory. You chose a people for yourself that they might be glorified with you. There is no greater news that the God who is love loves his people, saves his people, preserves his people. Lord, we praise you for your coming, that you took on flesh and walk among us. And Lord, we patiently wait Your second coming. We will come with the armies of heaven, whether we be with You in triumph or we remain here on earth militant. We look forward to the day we have no fear because You are with us. We look forward to the day where we will be with You forever. The things that You came here to redeem will be fully restored the sickness, the death, the pain, the chaos. You have the answer for it all. You are our only hope, our only truth, our only light. We praise You, our God, to the glory of the Father. Through the name of Jesus Christ, the Son, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So before we get into our text, there's a little bit of background in John that's helpful for us. So John 6, 14 and 15 tells you what happened between the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking in the water. And this is important because it goes to Jesus' motivations and why He separates himself from the disciples. So in John 6:14 through15, John says this: When the people saw the sign, the multiplying of the bread and the loaves. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So remember, the, the, the people's desire was not to see him as, as God, but they, they still want the restoration of Israel. This is, this is the prophet. This is the one we, we, we look to. Uh, again, they've, they've tried to make him king before. Perceiving then, verse 15, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So this is why Jesus withdrew, and this is why he made his disciples withdraw. Look at verse 45 back in Mark 6. Immediately he made, this is he compelled, he forced his disciples to go into the boat and go before him. He doesn't want the disciples caught up in the fray. He doesn't want the disciples listening to the crowds. He knows how easily susceptible they are. So he tells them to remove themselves, and he goes up to the mountain to pray. And so we, we've talked about the symbolisms of, of mountains. Why didn't just Jesus go into the desert? Why does Jesus go into a mountain? Mountains are, have a lot of symbolism within Scripture, and we've looked at this, but mountains are power and might, but they're also, they also symbolize closeness to God. They are closer to heaven. They are where worship takes place. The Jews worship on Mount Sinai. The Samaritans, another mount. When you see Asherah poles and, uh, and idols put up, they are typically on mountains. The thought is it gets you closer to God. And, they're, and, and we see this with Jesus, that He is removing Himself. He is separating Himself physically and spiritually, setting Himself apart from the world. Getting as close as He can to His Father. And the, the beauty of this is that He doesn't seek adulation and congratulations from the people He doesn't want the attention on him for what he has done at this moment. He wants consolation, comfort from the Father. And this is what is most important to him. And Mark is intentional in bringing these in. So that Jesus is never disconnected from the Father. That he never neglects his time with the Father. And we don't have to read any further than this first verse to get convicted. I was convicted reading this this week that I wish I had a shadow of the desire to be with the Father that Jesus had. I'm convicted at of how often I neglect time with the Lord. Again and again we see Jesus instructing the disciples to go into a desolate place, for him, withdrawing himself in a desolate place. But how often in the busyness of our world and the craziness of our lives do we block out everything? Do we sit in quiet? Do we go before the Lord? One of my great, I love many things about Florida, one of my great regrets about Florida is there are no mountains. There is nothing like being in the mountains and seeing the majesty of God's creation to remind you of His power and His might and His beauty. I know why Jesus did this, but I don't know why we don't do it more often. We know this, but we forget. Mark includes this to tell us about jesus's practice but probably to remind us as well when was the last time you went away with the father when was the last time you withdrew that he would console and comfort you that you would be renewed in your spirit if if it's been too long it's about time and uh, speaking to myself first and foremost in that and so this is what jesus is doing So Jesus is off on the mountain. He sends them off on the boat, picking up in verse 46. And after He had taken leave of them, uh, He went up on the mountain to pray. One of the things you're going to see here as we go through this first passage is driven by the actions of Jesus. Uh, He made the disciples. He dismissed the crowds. He went up on the mountain to pray. This entire narrative is is drawn by Jesus' actions. And When the evening came, the boat was out at sea, and He alone was on the land. So before we get into what Jesus does, the imagery of the, sh- the, the sea, as I promised. So the sea is another imagery that is all throughout Scripture. And so typically when we see sea in Scripture, S-E-A, it is chaos. We are reminded of the wind and the waves. It is, it is creation that is out of control. It is creation that uh, needs its boundaries established, that uh, is so powerful that no man Can control it, it's only God who can control it. And so I want to give us a quick biblical theology of of the sea because where this miracle happens is just as important as what Jesus does in it. The first one, Job 38, when uh, God responds to Job, one of the things that, that characterizes God that cannot characterize man is what he does to the sea. So he gives Job this list of where were you? Uh, Answer me like a man, and Job, as a good man that he is, does not answer until he repents. But here's what God says. Or who shut in the sea with doors? When it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling clothes. The sea is not something that that can be controlled by man. God also prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors. This, This visual of how strong the sea is, it must be barred in. And said, Thus far shall you come, and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. We have one more. Verse 11. Oh, there's verse 11. Got it. Um, missed a little 11 up there. All right. Psalm 89 as another beautiful picture. You rule the raging of the sea when its r- waves rise. You still them. This is only God. This is a praise song. No one else can still the waters. Um, now this next verse may be a little confusing because you're like, what does Rahab have to do with the waters? This is not Rahab. This is Rahab. Same spelling. This is Hebrew that is synonymous with Egypt, but also the sea. And so when Rahab is mentioned in the Psalms, Rahab is not that popular. Um, But you crushed Rahab. You crushed Egypt also the sea you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm this is a reference to the parting of the red sea god didn't just part the sea he crushed it he gave his power over it this the mighty raging waters were parted like nothing like the enemies of god they are subdued this is all throughout the old testament i can keep going and going and going But this is an imagery that continues in the New Testament. Look at James chapter 1. This is, the man who seeks wisdom must ask for God and let him ask in faith with no doubting. For or but the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. The same chaos that exists in the world exists in the mind of the doubting man. Exist in the mind of the one who is divided in spirit, the one who chases after other things, because they have no fixed point. They have no anchor. They are driven and tossed. We are not to be like the sea. We are like to be we are to be those in faith who ask without doubting. Once again in Jude, this powerful picture of those who go within within the church, and their design and their desire is to is to bring chaos and disorder. Look at how the people who bring division in the church are described by Jude, the brother of Jesus. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. If you're a boat, the last thing you want is a hidden reef. It will rip through the bottom of your boat very quickly. And as they feast with you, without fear, shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, twice dead, powerful imagery. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is the sea in the Bible. It is rarely a good thing. Even though the fishermen made their livings on it, it was always treacherous, it was it was always unpredictable. And probably nowhere else do we see the the full spectrum of what the sea means than in the book of Revelation. And so the sea plays a big role. When the great beast comes up to torment the church, he comes out of the sea. That is his his dwelling place. But then the contrast is the throne room of God is described as a sea of glass. It is a sea with no chaos. It is a beautiful piece of waters without without rage and without wind and waves. But the amazing thing is when God recreates all things, new heaven, new earth, temple, tree of life, rivers of living water, something will be absent. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Of all the things that would be in Revelation 21.1, The beginning of the creation of the new heavens and new earth, the first thing that will no longer be is the sea. Now we think the sea is beautiful. We live in Florida. We want to go to the ocean. It's a great thing. But biblically, the sea is raging with chaos and contempt. I want to leave you with with one more that really shows us the Gospel. And this is in Micah chapter 7. When Micah at the end of his prophecy tells Israel to look for the God who will come. The Lord of their salvation that they wait for. Their their great shepherd who will deal with his enemies. Look at the context of how Micah views sin. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his, his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will walk on them. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The sea is synonymous with sin and darkness and wickedness and the depth of death. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our father's from the days of old the promises of God the God who forgives iniquities the God who forgives sins as he will walk on the sea he will he will tread down the the wickedness of our sin it will be cast down so deeply that it will no longer be remembered this imagery should come to mind when the Hebrews read this if you know your Old Testament scriptures you know that when the sea when the sea is mentioned usually good things do not happen and this is Jesus looking over the scene. So I, w- I want to set this up because this is not by accident in this account. So again, back in Mark, Jesus, in the uh, evening came, the boat was on the sea, and he was alone on land. And the next action of Jesus, verse 48, is that he saw. This is important as well. Jesus has the perfect vantage point. He's sitting up on a mountain. He knows exactly where his disciples are, and this should tell us and teach us. That there is nothing outside of his vision. He sends them off, but he is not unaware of what they're going through. There is nothing that catches him by surprise, nothing hidden from his sight, even the difficult and the painful as we're going to see in the moment. Even the, the, the wind crashing against their faces, them rowing tirelessly and not getting anywhere. They were out on the sea. John gives us the detail that they were three to four miles out. This is not right offshore. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus sees them. And He sees that they're making headway painfully. This is literally they are, they're being tormented in their, their progress. They are fighting with all of their strength to get across this sea. and Jesus is watching. Jesus is seeing this is the second time in a couple of chapters we see the disciples with the wind and waves against them. We saw it back again in, in chapter 37, or ch- chapter 4, verse 37. And the great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boats so that the, the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Probably the same sentiment going on. Well, Jesus is safe up on the mountain. In their minds, Jesus is, is, is asleep. Are they asking the same question? Do you not care that we're perishing? But Jesus is as calm now as he was then in the midst of their trial. And this was the fourth watch of the night. And the fourth watch was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And this is an important detail because the Jews had three watches and the Romans had four. What does that mean? That helps us to understand where Mark was writing and who Mark's intended audience was. He had a Roman audience in mind. The fourth watch of the night, if you were a Roman citizen, if you were in Rome, probably where Mark was when he was writing, you would understand what time of night this is. So it gives you an insight into Mark's mind. Because if you are writing to, uh, to Gentiles, what is most important, that they know that Jesus, this man that you've heard about, is fully God. Not like all of your other gods, but the one and only true God. And this God... After sees that they're they're making headway painfully and that the wind is against them, He came, this next action here, to them, walking on the sea. Now the Greek is really interesting here. You know what it says in the Greek? Walking on the sea. That's it. He is walking on the sea. There is no way to confuse this. This is no parlor trick or this is... So many people have tried to explain this away in, in, in so many different ways. There's no natural explanation to this. He is walking on the water four miles out in the middle of the ocean. Who does that? Only the one who created the water can tread on top of it. Only the one who spoke it into existence. And We haven't got very far, but there's another very important detail here. He meant to pass by them. That language is important. And we should not pass by this statement. It's a peculiar detail, but it's not by accident. Jesus meant to do it. So what does that mean? Now this phrase is not unique to the New Testament. If you're familiar with how God deals with His people in the Old Testament, there's a particular way when God speaks about His people and showing them His favor. And so I want to open up a couple passages here. Because if Jesus meant to pass by them, if Jesus is intentional about it, we should dig into it. Exodus 33. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus. Second book in the Bible. It will be up on the screen as well. So Exodus 33 is a very important time in the life of, of uh, Israel. We've got covenant renewal. We've got Moses going before the people on, on behalf of Israel. And God wanting to show his relationship with his people in a unique way and how does God express that? Does Exodus 33 pick up in verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight I and your people this is Moses speaking to God. It is is it not and you're going with us so that we are distinct I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, the I am. Remember this detail. So think about this. Moses said, show us your glory. God says, you can't handle my glory, but I will pass by you. Part of my glory will will go by you because you have found favor. I will give you my glory and I will let you know my name. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for a man shall not see me and live. This is important. In the covenant of Moses, when Israel is in the wilderness, they cannot see God or they will die. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. Stand over there. And while my glory passes by, I will put you on a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Starting to make the connection here. If Jesus means to pass by them, he's doing it in a very distinct way that God did not in, in Exodus 33. But this picture comes up again in the very next chapter. Chapter 34, picking up in verse 5. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with them there and proclaimed the name of the the Lord. God descends and proclaims the name of God. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. When God passes before His people, this is what He's proclaiming. I'm the God who loves you. I'm the God of steadfast love. I'm the God who forgives sins. But who will by no means clear the guilty. This passing by is not for everyone visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward earth and worshipped. And he said, Now if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels. Such as have not been created in all the earth or in any other nation. And all the people among whom uh, you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. When the Lord passes before his people, it is a covenant sign that he's going to do something amazing, that he has shown his favor on his people like he does nowhere else. But they only could, Moses had to be covered by the hand of God because seeing God would destroy him. Yet Jesus means to pass by. Yet Jesus walks by them so that they will see Him pass by, that they will know that He has their favor. This imagery of passing by is not unique to Exodus. We're going to go earlier in the book of Job. Job chapter 9. When Job speaks of the Lord and Job brings up the problem between man and God, truly I know that is so. But how can a man be right before God? The greatest question anyone will ever ask, how can man be right before God? How can sinful man be reconciled to holy God? Look at how Job describes God later on. Picking up in verse 6. Should be on the next slide. Or is it verse 9? Yeah, verse 9. So he made the bear and Orion and Pleiadius. Wait a second. Sorry. I think it should be verse 8. So if you have your Bibles, Job 9, verse 8. Typo when I put that in. So Job 9, verse 8. He says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled on the ways of the sea? God is the only one who walks, tramples on the sea. The same God who set out the heavens, He walks on the waters. He made the bear in Orion and Pleiades in the chambers of the south. The rest of this will be up on the screen. And who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. That God, He does amazing things. Behold, He passes by me and I see Him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive Him. Job has this amazing understanding that God is with him, that God's favor passes by him even though he cannot see it. Job is struggling with the, the, the difficulties he's going through. He knows that God's favor rests on him. And now, these Disciples see God fully manifested. Jesus makes God manifest and He walks by them. This just in itself is a divine declaration. I am the one who walks on the waters. I am the one who passes by my people. I am the one who covenants with my people. I am the one who does amazing things in the the eyes of my people. This is what He is getting at. But when they saw him walking on the sea, again, what do you think this says? Walking on the sea. As if they saw a ghost. Phantasma. The only time this is used in the New Testament. It's not like seeing an angel. It's like seeing a ghost. Something else that no one has ever seen. There's nothing like that ever. No other reference in the New Testament sounds like this. They see this ghost. And they cried out. Now we don't translate this directly in English because it doesn't make a lot of sense, but they cried up. Most of you have cried out. Many of you have cried up. That means they they shouted out really loud. It wasn't just crying out like it was it was like Shaggy and Scooby when when, when the ghosts come and they're jumping on each other. They cried up. They were so scared, they were trembling in the boat. I love that I can get Ian to laugh on these things, and it'll it's the gift that keeps on giving. And you would too. If you're you're struggling to the end of your strength and you're rowing on, on the sea and the wind is beating you in the face and the waves are coming over the side, and then Jesus walks by, you're gonna scream up too. As manly as a man you are, you will you will yell up. I mean, think about the disciples, their whole world is turning upside down. Everything that they know, all of the laws of nature have been broken. Man with withered hand being healed. Demons being cast out. Bread being multiplied. Jesus walking on the waters. And they are rightly terrified. For they all saw Him and were terrified. But, this is key here, but immediately He spoke to them. One thing you'll notice in Scripture is when we see human fear and human sin in the weakness of man, the insufficiency of man, there is a powerful but. But God. But immediately, there is a comfort. And He speaks to them. He sees how afraid they are. He, he condescends in their weakness and He says, take heart. This is, this is not just be encouraged. It means, it means to take courage, to be strong. Sit up straight. Man up. Why? Because it is I. This is important though. This does mean it is I. But ego a me, I am. Take heart, I am. The same God who said, I will show you my favor by passing by you, and I will declare to you my name. Jesus passes by them and declares his name. This is when God enters a covenant, he passes by and he declares his name. I am. The same term he used in the burning bush. I am that I am. Hashem, the great name of God that must not be spoken. Yahweh, the God of Israel. I am. This is the most most powerful divine statement in this whole narrative. That is the reason they should not be afraid. The great I am is the one who passed by you and who's walking with you and all puns intended he does not just walk the walk he talks the talk and when they need him the most he makes himself known at exactly the right time fear not do not be afraid this is the greatest reason we have not to be afraid because the great i am is jesus And the great I Am is with you. Notice in this story that apart from Jesus, there is fear and there is uncertainty. But when He is with you, He makes Himself known and He tells you, do not fear. Because our God is also our King who has promised to be with us always. And while He is with us, which is always, He is God and He tells us, do not be afraid. Even in the midst of the storm, the wind and the waves and the chaos, the most comforting thing they can hear is, I am. Do not be afraid. Jesus is making a powerful statement when He steps into the boat. This is the point where Matthew includes the detail of Peter walking on the water. And Peter, like many of us, he feels empowered in the moment but he finds it hard to trust for long i see that you're walking on the water i see that you have power over the waves and i trust you for about two footsteps until i look down until i begin to sink in my own doubt and questioning just like the man in james the one who doubts he is tossed by the waves but what mark wants us to see is not peter's inability but jesus's power jesus's divinity That that is to be our focus, not our ability to maintain our own trust in Him. And what happens is when He is fully with them and He gets into the boat only when He is with them, the wind ceases and they are utterly astounded. It's a beautiful picture that when God is with His people, there is order. There is no longer chaos. On their own, they are tormented in the storms. The moment he steps in, there is calm and there is peace. Isn't it true with us, though? Ever feel like you were going from one storm to another? That there is never peace in your boat, figuratively speaking? It's probably, I mean, there's, you may want to take account here, but how often are you rowing out to the middle of the ocean on your own? In your own strength, fighting against the waves, thinking I don't, I'll call on Jesus as my last-minute lifeline. I can do this on my own and wonder why I keep getting smacked in the face. There is a great reminder here that when He is with us, there is calm, even if the storms keep coming. But so many of us are struggling against the oars, are pushing with all of our strength and all of our might, yet do not look to the great I Am who bids us, do not be afraid. And I'm going to take a speculation here, but I assume the disciples thought He came too long. Or excuse me, it took too long for Him to come. But He came at the perfect time. Because if it was us, like Jesus, why can't You stop this storm from coming? Why couldn't You rescue us before the wind and the waves? Why couldn't You have came when we were 15 feet off the shore so we could have avoided this whole mess? Well, one... They wouldn't have been taught to trust Him. We learn so much more in the midst of the storm than we do on the safety of the shore. But, most importantly, He is more glorified when He rescues them from the midst of the storm. He is more glorified when He rescues Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the midst of the fire than from the, to remove them from the fire at all. God is glorified by showing in your strength you are weak and you are tossed to and fro, but with me, you have nothing to fear. You have courage because I am here. And God's timing is what is amazing in all this. He is more glorified in the triumph than He would be in preventing it in the first place. And this is hard for us to recognize because in our minds, if we were God, we would never let anything bad happen to anyone. But then you would never understand grace and mercy and forgiveness and rescue and deliverance and redemption. And redemption. And they, rightfully so, when the disciples see this and the wind ceases, they are astounded. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Bring it back to the loaves again. Jesus has power over creation. I can multiply bread and fish. I will build my kingdom. There is nothing I can't do. It's easy for me. Yet they still miss the point. Because their hearts are hardened. This is not describing a temporary hardness. This is a heart that has been hard and is continuing in hardness. They've seen all this, yet they have fully not grasped Jesus' divinity. And this is further proof in the Gospel of Mark that no amount of external evidence or signs or wonders can produce faith. It must be an internal transformation of the heart. They just saw Jesus walk on water and they're still hard-hearted. Matthew adds a detail that they worshipped Him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. They can even form their mouths to make the words that you are the Son of God, yet not believe it in their hearts. This should be a sobering reminder that the God who is with us must be first the God who is in us. He must transform us. The God who is with us must first be the God who is in us. Otherwise, all of our vain speech and, things we, and good things we say about God mean nothing if our heart is not transformed. But when God is in us, sending His Spirit to cry out, Abba, Father, He teaches us to speak and recognize Him in a way we can. So, they cross over. I'm not going to spend as much time On uh, these last few verses, this this is a summary that Mark does several of these, kind of showing us what happens in between the major events. Jesus is, is healing people, but there's a couple things we can we can pull out of this. We notice the subject changes. The last the last few verses are: He did this. He dismissed the crowd. He went up. He meant to pass by. He spoke. This is Jesus doing the action. Notice who the subject is now. When they land, when they crossed over, they came to the land. And when they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him. What do we learn from this? That when Jesus is with his disciples, they are united to one another. They are known by him. And what should happen is when they see the disciples, they see Jesus. They recognize him. It's not the disciples that they came for. It's Jesus that they came for. But they are spoken of with one another. When he got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Well, at first, they had moored to the shore. This is a great connection to Hebrews. If you were in our Hebrew study on Wednesday, Jesus is the anchor of our soul. When Dylan talked about being moored. It is an anchor that is not dropped in the middle of the water. It is an anchor that is dropped to solid land so that the boat will not shift and move. This is the, the, the picture of Jesus, the anchor of our soul who anchors us to the heavenly places so that we will not drift away the same way this boat would not drift away to, to stay on land. Just a cool little side note there. These verses that come up and the vast issue of sickness and everything that Jesus dealt with brings us all the way back to the beginning in that He came to redeem a world of chaos. Every town, every village, every countryside, every marketplace, there is sick people. There is hurting people. And they Bring them to Jesus, and they come all over as they should, to the only source, the God-man. Let's look at the details here. And he ran, and they ran, the people, about the whole region, and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, in the middle of the mall, and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many touched it were made woe. When I read this this week, I think this is what we're supposed to do. This is what we're called to do. There is sick and hurting everywhere. We are called to bring them to Jesus. Every town, every city, every place where people are in Christ. They're to bring them to Him. And anyone, everyone who comes to Him will be made well. Because only the God who creates, recreates. Only this God can redeem and restore humanity. But the sad reality is, like these people, most people come to Jesus just for what they can get out of them. Most people come to Jesus just for a change in circumstances or physical healing. And most people promote the gospel that says, uh, you come to Jesus for what you can get from Jesus. And if you come to him for change in circumstances, you might get that, but that is all you will ever get. But if you come to him knowing you are like the sea, knowing that your life is chaos and it is the depth of darkness and sin, that you are in need of peace and calm and that the the waters that are raging in your heart can only be stopped by Him, then you will truly be made well. Then you will truly live. And in the face of human insufficiency, God became man in Sufficiency. In the face of human insufficiency, God became man in sufficiency. We are so lacking in and of ourselves that when Jesus came, He came sufficient, lacking nothing. I want to close us with a great quote. I'll let you chew on that for a minute. Some of you guys are going to get that on the way home. <laughs> I want to close with this great quote from J.C. Ryle summing up the walking in the water. He says this, The event recorded in these verses is a beautiful picture of the position of all the believers between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. Like the disciples, we are now tossed to and fro by storms and do not enjoy the visible presence of our Lord. Like the disciples, we shall see our Lord face to face again, though it may be in a time of great extremity when He returns. Like the disciples, we will see everything change for the better when our master comes to us we will no longer be buffeted by storms there will be great calm what a great summary of this i just want to use this as our application like the disciples we will be tossed to and fro by storms without the visible presence of christ he does promise to be with us i am the great i am but he does not promise that things are going to be easy quite the opposite it's going to be hard There's going to be persecution, there's going to be difficulty, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You do not see me now, but one day you will. And this is the hope of the believer. That we know that even though outside it feels like the storms are raging against us, but inside Jesus has made His home with us. He has given us His Spirit to seal us and comfort His people until we see His visible presence again. But like the disciples, we will see Him. But it's not going to be easy. That time of great extremity. And so it's going to get worse before it gets better. But it gets much better. Infinitely better. But the promise that we've seen in Hebrews, that we've seen all along in Mark, is the one who goes before us. The one who goes to the cross. The one who goes to the grave and conquers death for us. The one who goes up to glory. Up to Mount Zion. The, the, the heavenly Jerusalem will come back to bring us to glory, to bring Mount Zion down to earth, to banish the sea forever, the sin and the wickedness, and the darkness and the uncertainty. We hate uncertainty. We hate chaos because we're supposed to. We are created to love order and to love beauty and to love peace and to love calm. And every time we see chaos and every time we see sin and every time we see disorder, we are reminded this is not how things are supposed to be. But he is coming back. He promised us he will, and his promises are good. Like we saw on Wednesday, he's the one who makes the promise and the oath. I am God, I have spoken. And then the final point that Rao makes here, when our Lord comes for us, there will be calm. There will be peace. This is the hope of the believer. Unfortunately, the false gospels that say you can have hope and peace uh, in your circumstances are lying to you. Our hope and our peace is in the One who calms the waters, the One who created the waters, and the One who will recreate all things. Our hope is in what is stored for us in heaven, and that is what we look forward to. So we, we praise God who came in flesh in this season. But even greater, He's coming back. And He's coming for His kids. And He's coming for us with a sword for everyone who hates Him and hates His kids, and they will be destroyed. So that... Every enemy will be defeated, and that there will never be calm, and, or excuse me, never be chaos and disorder and sin again. We look forward to that, because just as He walked on the waters and calmed the chaos of the lives of the disciples, he will come back and calm all things. And he, we will hear the words, "I am. Do not be afraid. Take courage." Those are the most beautiful words we will hear. The next time we hear Jesus speak, we will hear those words. Take heart, church. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you as a good and gracious God. The great I am. No one ever was or ever will be like you. There are no other gods, they are all liars and thieves. They are figments of man's imagination. Your very creation groans for your return and glory. We groan for your return and glory, but we know you are still calling the lost. You are still redeeming the broken. All those who come to you knowing that they need a Savior. Lord, we ask, You continue to reveal yourself to your people. You bring them home. So many that we are praying for, Lord, they they need to hear the words, I am, do not be afraid. Take courage. You are the only one who can rescue. You're the only one who can can bring peace out of chaos, and we trust you for this. We praise you for your work in the nations, the work in in our lives, and we ask you for work in those who we love who desperately need You. We look forward to the day when You will make all things new. Before Your throne, we will, see, we will see the waters as seas of glass. Perfect fishing. That You will be glorified in the beauty of Your creation without sin, without death, without despair. All of this we find in Jesus Christ, our King our priest, the offer and the perfecter of our faith. And your church says, come Lord Jesus, come. We love you and we praise you. In his name we pray, amen.